0: Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. I'm Neil Armand, your host for today's podcast. Uh, In the studio, we have James Smith. Now, the reason for inviting James to be part of the the Change Project is he's one of the pioneers of the social enterprise movement in the UK. Um, My friendship with him goes back probably to 1999 or something like that, when I was a student at the School for Social Entrepreneurs and he was leading the school. Um, He set up the school originally with Michael Young, Lord Young of Dartington, who's perhaps best known for founding Open University, Consumers Association, uh, along with probably a hundred other social organisations. And I think between James's own experience of social enterprise and working with hundreds of organisations, some of which have done incredibly well, some of which not so well, and I think there's something in that space, and his experience of working alongside such an incredible serial social entrepreneur as Michael Young. I really hope there's something we can add to the Change Project through this conversation. These days, James is a a social and environmental leadership consultant with a a real passion for for strategy, innovation, leadership. Uh, So again, I'm sure some of that will come into the the podcast as well. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I I hope it it adds value. Uh, I'll see you after the intro. Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. The whole universe is in a state of entropy.
1: If you can unlock that higher motivation, they'll be with you. How do you create an environment where people can find meaning at work? That can create the needed culture change. How does radical change happen? You know it's a good business. In terms of our evolution, we were not required to have a conscious understanding of complex systems.
0: What creates great innovation in the social arena? You taking action.
1: Have some real sense of control over our lives.
0: Welcome. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, (laughs) Neil. Okay, so maybe to begin with, to sort of ease ourselves in, can you give me an idea? What, what is it you do on a day-to-day basis? What, what are you doing? That, I know you change changed the world because I've known you long enough to know that, but what is it you actually do?
1: Most of what I do encompasses talking with people about what they're trying to do and trying to match up different people's viewpoints, helping people to collaborate, helping people to think together about how they can move progress with what it is that they're achieving so let me give you an example on the current project that i'm um, working on is to do the the planning for the development of a caribbean energy knowledge hub um working with the caricom secretariat for those of you who don't know caricom is something like the um the eu for caribbean states it's not as integrated as the EU uh, and doesn't have quite the same law-making powers, but it's uh, an association of, um, of countries. And they have between them decided to, on a sustainable energy roadmap and strategy, but they're having difficulty actually pursuing this, this as a regional strategy and achieving the targets that they've set themselves. Um, they need access to the best information and knowledge they can have in order to help them in this transition.
0: Lovely. And that sort of leads on to, you know, one of your specialisms is innovation. Obviously, you've been around social entrepreneurs for a, quite a while now and they've had Fair quite a few. few. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking back to, it's like, as I was sort of saying, 1999 is when it's like, Makes me sound old. It, like, <laughs> kind of let's let's pretend we've only known each other for a couple of years and been working at this for a couple of years. Uh, but you've been you've observed a lot of projects, you've seen a lot of people, some of which have been hugely innovative, some of which perhaps haven't. What what's the difference? What what creates great innovation in the, the social arena?
1: Well, I've always believed in the power of individuals. This is why we set up the School for Social Entrepreneurs. Because there was that sense that individuals can make a difference because they can, they can, uh, as it were, infect other people with uh, a, a creative mindset, with an innovative mindset within an organisation, um, and that that can create the needed culture change. What I don't think there are any hard and fast rules about what makes for good innovation or, or what causes innovation to fail. I've seen things, I've seen a lot of good ideas fail for many, many reasons. <laughs> and I've seen fairly bad ideas succeed for many, many reasons yeah. as well. Um, and I think that the, uh, possibly the difference that, that I would say is most important is playing the politics, the small P politics correctly is the biggest difference actually, that that um, unless there are people associated with a project who understand how to play the game right, how to get support from sufficiently powerful people and sufficient gatekeepers to allow a project to happen, uh, is, is actually probably the most important thing. It doesn't necessarily answer the question about um, where does the innovation come from, but I think that's probably the biggest difference between the the projects that go somewhere and those that don't and and yeah. therefore the you have this difficulty that that bad ideas where you have people there who do know how to play the play their politics right, often succeed in that they happen yes doesn't necessarily mean they achieve the objectives that they wanted or that they achieve any beneficial social change
0: I think that's really really interesting and I, I absolutely agree with you i've seen some tr- tremendous projects fail as you say and and others that yeah really really shouldn't have got there as we you think about innovation though if someone's in an organization right now and it's it's stale there's there's nothing happening i had this situation a, a couple of weeks ago where the the person was talking to me, how do I think about something new? I know we need something new, but how do I actually think about that? Have you noticed in the people you've worked with any particular characteristics that have made successful innovation work more effectively or creativity or anything like that?
1: I think that the, if we start, go back to Michael Young and start there, the, Thing that Michael had right up until the end was that he always questioned everything. He th- never assumed that because something's the way it is, that that's the way it always should be or has to be. Um, I, I think we have a, a trope in our society of saying, "Well, that's the way it's always been, and and that'll it'll never change. Yeah. it'll never change. People are, are very good at predicting things will." Never change. Um, Something I talk about with my father-in-law quite a lot. Does he listen to podcasts? uh, I don't think so. Okay, fine. (laughs) But I'll still be careful about what I say. But for instance, when I tried to talk with him about uh, inequality and the possibilities for a, a world that's organized in a different way, where... You have a far more equal society. He says there's always been rich people and, and there always will be. Yeah. Well, how does he know? <laughs> he, he, he knows because he has told himself that. Yes. Um, whereas someone like Michael never told himself, this is the way it is, this is the way it always will be. And, and I think that there are. there are probably people in most organizations who think like that but they're not necessarily in positions of power. So if you're the person, if you are in a position of power in an organization and you know things need to change, but you don't know what should change, well then ask people. Yeah. Because um, you're likely to find someone who's got some ideas. And having those ideas and responding positively to those ideas can start the process whereby you encourage other people to have ideas whereby you support ideas and, and you um, and are therefore able to create the conditions for change.
0: I really like that. that again, it's back to that questioning, isn't it? And the, the quality of that questioning, I think that is an important thing for people to get better and better at, at doing, is looking at their questions and noticing the responses that they're getting. You mentioned Michael Young there. Lord Young of Dartington, and obviously, he was a, a serial social entrepreneur. Um, you, know, you probably could list his accomplishments way better than I could, but was it the Consumers Association, um, School for Social Entrepreneurs alongside yourself, Open University, I think he had a very big hand in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, incredible thinker, and, and and managed to bring those, you know, the fact that many, many years on, most of them are still a big part of our society says something about the way in which they were created. Were there any other lessons you learnt from him that that you think have held you in good stead as you've gone through your career? Money is important because it
1: buys time. So I think that one of the things that I noticed was Michael would always treat the where the money was coming from seriously, never to the detriment of... What it was you were trying to achieve but in order to buy people's time to work on something a sense that uh, if you if you work on something over a continued period that no one else is working on that's different you're already creating change by the fact simply that, that someone is working on this and the longer you can keep going the more you're likely to achieve and if you keep the right attitude in the organization then then you um, you can you can continue to question what it is that, that you're doing and, until you find something that works. Okay. So I, I think that that's, that's one lesson. Um, I'm just trying to think back because I remember when we had the uh, memorial conference for Michael, for the School of Social Entrepreneurs, I did write a list of my... <laughs> <laughs> what were my lessons I learned from Michael um,
0: there was certainly one of my memories of him which isn't really a, mm-hmm. a, a lesson but just giving you time to think <laughs> uh, was very much that top floor room at the the SSE um, him being up there in the kitchen eating his tomato soup <laughs> at lunchtime and and kind of how humble he was uh, that me as a student going in there and being able to talk to him uh, at that port- point, you know, n- that humility seemed to, to come across very much for me. Um, you obviously knew him much, much better. You might go, no way, <laughs> uh, but th- 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 that, that's I, what I
1: did. I think that one of the key lessons that I learned from him is that entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurial approach requires... Moving between extremes at the appropriate frequency. Okay. So, for instance, needing to be both flexible and rigid. And that, and and that, I mean, you obviously can't do both at exactly the same time. But so, working out the moments when you need to be hard and say, no, we're doing it, this is what we're doing. Right. And then working out the other moments when you need, when you're, say, well, Okay, I'm open to ideas about how this is working. Yeah, uh, I, I think that there's a. I don't know how well I'm explaining that, but um, one of the things that he talked about was points of crystallization on a journey to, towards social entrepreneurship, and as though you kind of you you start up your working on your issue, you open things up, you get lots of things moving on different tracks. And then you have points at which you regroup and you say, okay, here's my new conception of what this is. And then you start again from that new point. And the whole process repeats and repeats and repeats. Um, To make sure, both to make sure that you're on track, to capture the best of the ideas and the best of the things that are happening, but also to ensure that you don't constantly waste effort because you're getting diverted in a million and one different directions because you will yeah you have to he he always talked about working with the grain of social change and therefore you have to respond to the opportunities that arise you have to respond to um, other people and other organizations and the way that they're currently working and the opportunities that arise in collaborating with them but if you only ever do that you get dragged down on other people's agendas and you don't end up achieving the things that you've set out to achieve in the first place. So that's why you need these moments of crystallization and culling the ideas that aren't achieving what you want them to achieve, culling the actions that aren't achieving what you want them to achieve.
0: Uh, it's very interesting, and that culling piece as well, it's like one of the things I often attribute to you in a nice way. I remember back in the when I was doing stuff around the, social, the School for Social Entrepreneurs and working with you around there, I can vividly remember a conversation about how charities often get to the to a point way beyond their social purpose and they exist only for the the staff that exists within them. Um, and it was a conversation that was was quite poignant for me and was a, a major catalyst for after the plane crash when uh, we got to the point of making decisions about kickass as a as a charity as an organization we looked around for a a new leader to take it on and there was no shortage of people who were willing to step into the ceo shoes but we couldn't find anyone who would take it who who had a vision for where to take it beyond my thinking and really that's what we were looking for was not someone who go we'll continue to do exactly what you're doing we wanted someone who was going to go. Let's take it beyond this. Let's let's take that foundation and move it further. And one of the what well, the decision we took at the end, without that person, it was better to close it down, and and create a space in the market for the next innovative mm. organisation to come through, rather than filling that space. I'm sure somebody could have got a lot of money for it and continued for it to thrive. But I think it. it wouldn't have had the impact that kickass had in its heyday be my guess
1: there is a cycle that, that organizations go through and there are points at which they have, they have outlived their usefulness they can be revived it does take it that as you say that mindset to think right well in this new world what is it that's now needed um, I've worked for a long time with the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Partnership, REAP, which was set up in 2002, came out of the Johannesburg Earth Summit. And that, at the time, in 2002, renewable energy wasn't a big thing. And a lot of the the initial effort was simply trying to promote the idea of renewable energy to governments around the world and, and to others. But then... After, I think it must have been around 2011, so after sort of nine years or something, the original um, Director General left and there was an uh, a, a opening for the Director General. And, and he, when he came in, he realized we need some new thinking. Mm. The world is not the same. Renewable energy in China was one of the big... Um, priority countries initially in 2002 and during that first decade of, of REAP's life but beyond uh, that point they had already got the idea yeah <laughs> that renewable energy was the way forward and um, yes there were issues about building coal plants as well rapidly during that time but there was always the intention that that was as a fill-in gap until they could develop the, the renewable energy to a sufficient extent that um, that th- they wouldn't need the, that reliance on fossil fuels anymore. Um, but by the time 10 years later, when the new director-general took over, well, China has enormous renewable energy industries, huge uh, generation of of wind and solar power, and there's no need to try and persuade them that they should be doing renewable energy anymore. (laughs) You you know, (laughs) that's (laughs) simply not an issue. And therefore, there are things that REAP had to think very differently about. Well, what's our role? Is there a role for us within this situation? And if so, what is it? And it's ended up as a very different organization focusing on a totally different kind of niche sector within a field that is now too big for an organization of REAP size to say we're going to encompass all of this. There's now an organization called IRENA. I don't know how many times REAP size it is in terms of staff members and budget, which is the International Renewable Energy Organization. Um, But that can take on that general sort of diplomacy role working with countries and REAP now focuses on private sector organisations and working with those organisations to accelerate markets.
0: That's interesting and one of the questions that I often talk to, to clients about is are you doing now what you need to do in order to be relevant in, in a few years time and I'm kind of hearing that in what you're saying there.
1: Well, I think that yes, absolutely, and the, there's nothing new in this thinking. You know, Charles Handy has been talking about having the next curve ready uh, for when this one <laughs> is on the decline for for decades now. So, uh, so there's nothing new in this, but I, I think certainly the the sense of, um, of of foresight and trying to work out what will be needed, not now, but not just what is needed now, but what will be needed in five years, what will be needed
0: in 10 years, is is very important. Absolutely. He also spoke about cathedral builders, of he, course. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I, what's your view on that? How, how do we get people... You know, the idea of, of cathedral builders, to my mind, was this from ancient times, where the architect would never expect to see a cathedral actually completed it just was in his head and then it went out into the world and became this magnificent building to my mind we need a few more cathedral builders in the world and that was his point 15 20 years ago any views about how we can get more cathedral builders or indeed do we need them or is there something else now in today's world that we i, need? I think that
1: i think we are getting more um Without wanting to harp on about our age again, (laughs) I I think that there are a lot of young people growing up who, and maybe this is something to do with this being the early years of the century, but there are people growing up now who realise that the world has to change, that, that the 21st century is going to be a time of an enormous transition. Climate change makes this an imperative. And I think that there are people who see that as way bigger than their, their own lifetimes or what they're able to achieve themselves. Uh, there's uh, something that I'm not in, involved in in any way other than giving them a small donation every now and then is um, our children's trust in the US who are bringing legislation against the US government for denying them their constitutional rights by continuing to burn fossil fuels, even though they've known for decades that this is bad for the planet. These these group of, children, of young people have said, um, have said that how can we have our right, exercise our right to the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness in a country, in a world, where the climate is restraining our choices. And that case is going to come to court uh, at some point in the near future. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there in terms of hope, and Mason's sitting over there behind the cameras and, and everything, and I, it's, it's wonderful having his energy is so important to me within these conversations, again, to bring that hope, that, that kind of millennial hope, to, to bear on some of the old... Wizened cynicism that's developed over over the years. Uh, you said something very interesting before with regards to your father-in-law not wanting to go too deep into that, but uh, you you talked about this possibility of a more equal society, and you know that in your map it sounded like that was actually possible. There was something that could happen in that space, perhaps in, in his. History and the way that he thought about it didn't make that so possible. What's what's your thought? Is there a formula? Have you got any ideas? How how could we have a more equal society? Universal basic income, obviously,
1: is gathering garnering a lot of attention, and I think that that's one idea that can be explored. I think there are many, many ideas. I mean, I think that the, the current obsession of Western capitalist societies with uh, taxation being a bad thing has to end. This is ridiculous. You can't have a, uh, good services for, um, for most people in a world where the rich people won't pay taxes. That That simply has to we we have to change that as an acceptable moral position, and I think that that 's entirely possible to do. I think people have very short memories, um, and I am old enough to remember a time before uh, our current uh, rapacious capitalism took over the world when there was there were a lot of competing attitudes about the way the world should work that were given just as much attention in the media and and I think that once again this is a this is hopefully another thing that the that the younger generations will get the opportunity to work through in their lives to to question the um, to question what the hegemony of the of a certain political mindset, which which has been most of well in fact all of my adult life in the UK, mm. but it's not the way that things work in other parts of the world. It's not the way that things work. Um, in obviously in some of the Scandinavian countries where they have a far higher tax regime, it's not the way that things happen in countries in in Africa and Asia where people have a far more collective idea about uh, uh, about the way that they live their lives. So I I don't think that um, anything lasts forever, and I think that there's lots of possibilities of of how things could change.
0: And do you have any views about? How we move from where we are now to that more equal world. I mean, as you say, that's one possible way forward. But I am interested about how that transition come out and how that sort of change actually takes place in in your head, <laughs> 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 and how it comes out of your head and actually comes <laughs> into I, the world. Because I, a, I mean, a a in the world. Well, that yeah.
1: Well, I, I think I like to think of things. Um I think that I think that a good way of understanding social change is to think about different movements that we are all of us a part of, whether knowingly or not, a part of different movements in society. Uh, and I think that it is those movements which no one directly controls, which are the result of millions and millions of individual decisions and actions. But which people can influence. Uh, it's the result of those movements that creates serious changes in society. Um, if you think about the development of the internet, this is a movement that had its pioneers and its trailblazers, and, and then a, a, a series of sort of um, people who were early on the uptake before this became a mass thing in our, in our lives. And uh, during that entire development, no one person decided this is how this yeah. is going to develop. And even now, when we're all starting to get worried about the, the big four large companies controlling too much of it, they don't control the way that digitalization works in everyone's lives. They're trying to put their arms around (laughs) bits of it and and say, this is ours, and and within this area, we are gonna control the way that people work. And of course, that's worrying, but that's happening within a much larger social movement which has swept the entire globe within 20 years. One thing I am is very optimistic that things can change very, very quickly. Yes. Um, And I was... Uh, I lit, heard a, um, a, a webinar where someone was talking about the development of the fossil fuel industry. And they, they showed two pictures. One picture was Times Square in 1901. And what they said is, spot the car. Right, And somewhere in there amongst horse-drawn carriages and people walking was one motor car. And then they showed a picture of 1911 and they said, spot the horse-drawn carriage. And there was one. And that's how quick things change. And that's how quickly things will change with renewable energy, for instance. um, When the price of batteries gets sufficiently low, things will suddenly go. Yes. The fossil fuel industries will die, not because anyone has killed them, but because there's something better that's just as cheap or, or cheaper. And, and so I think that the same thing can happen in terms of people's attitudes, the majority of people's attitudes to inequality in society. The same thing happened once again that Michael Young was highly involved in after the Second World War. Again, for those who don't know, anyone listening to this, Michael Young wrote Let Us Face the Future, the, the Labour Manifesto, um, for the 1945 general election, and it was following that general election that the, the modern welfare state was set up. This was completely revolutionary. It, yeah. took, it was decades in the making to get to the point when that could happen, but when it happened, there was a sufficient impetus because of the, the World War and everything that people have been through to make that happen, and it happened. And I think the same thing will happen, hopefully, at some point around climate change, that people will realise that actually the biggest problem that we have that's creating climate change isn't the fossil fuel industry, it's the rapacious capitalism that drives that fossil fuel industry to fight the
0: changes that it knows full well need to happen. I like that. Um, you spoke about organisations having a natural cycle as well, and it just in my head as you were talking about that, I was thinking about you. Know, obviously, you have come from the the social enterprise movement. You advise a lot of social organisations and charities, and uh, you know have understand the business community as well. Do you think there's We're still going to have businesses, charities, social enterprises in 10 years' time. Do you think there's going to be changes in the way uh, those organisations exist? or How do you think the future looks around that sort of stuff? I think the future looks diverse. I think the
1: interesting thing about these different vehicles, the different models of organisation that can exist is that they are, they're mix and match. So the best social entrepreneurs and the best social enterprises, to my mind, always use these these different organizational models anyway as as tools and you would get groups with different models within that where a profit-making business was supporting a, a social or community purpose business. Or a variety of different different things. Um, this is definitely one of the things that I learned from Michael is, is that the the particular type of organisation doesn't dictate the way you work. Just because something is set up as a fo- as a um, company limited by shares, doesn't mean it has to only focus on profit making. Absolutely.
0: And do you think there'll be? I mean, I, are you do you think there's going to be a movement towards that? You talked about capitalism and sometimes it feels like we're actually getting further away from from that social purpose to a commercial organizations. Other times it feels like we're we're almost getting a blend and there's this possibility particularly as you start to look at organizations that are are considering their impact on the teams working mm. within them and the, the impact they have on their customers. And, you know, the, the, there's there's some really exciting stuff potentially happening there as well. What what are your thoughts about how... I don't, there's a question in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, about how... Do you think that the, the, there is going to be more social imperative within organizations or do you think we're going to it's almost going to be a bubble that bursts and something new has to come in i
1: think there will be a growing number of nominally for-profit businesses that choose to seriously follow social imperatives i think that's inevitable whether they will become the majority or whether they will become the majority in terms of their their size and their sort of collective power. I don't know. Um, There will always be organizations. Well, there will always. I I said they should never say that, right? (laughs) Um, I I think within my lifetime, there will be organizations that exist just to make their owners rich. I don't, I'm not um, so sort of optimistic that I think that's going to stop anytime soon. I think it might one day stop entirely, but who knows, um, but the, there's, there are, with this new generation of kids growing up internet savvy, um, with access to information about what's going on around the world, I think that there's, it's inevitable that you get different expectations that people place on their workplace. And I think that there are there are the roots already of serious changes where companies are starting to understand that they're going to attract the best talent mm. if they are not just greenwashing or social washing what they do, but if it's meaningful. Yes. That they're they're not just trying to fob the public off by saying Okay, for every thousand we make, we'll give one away and call that our corporate social responsibility and we won't have to worry about how we make the thousand because we're doing this good thing with this this one over here. I think that more and more people are going to question that. However, there is a counter-movement which is trying to take individual agency out of People's working lives, yeah. and that's artificial intelligence. And I think that there's a whole load of work that needs to be done around that in the coming decades, around how we regulate the use of artificial intelligence. Because the danger is that um, individuals who are employed are de-skilled. Yes. Because higher, higher and higher-skilled jobs will get given to automated. Processes which can simply do them way, way, way cheaper.
0: Yes. And do you think, I mean, if, if someone's listening and they're a leader within an organization and they want to think more pro- progressively or they want their organization to be a bit kinder or whatever, any thoughts about the steps that, that people can take or from the observation you've made of businesses, is there a difference that makes a difference that can be tapped into? Stop thinking that the ethics you apply in your
1: own life are any di- should be any different from the ethics you apply in your business life i think we've created a distinction between the two and i think that there are a lot of people who are good people who want to live a good life who wouldn't dream of hurting the people around them who Tate, who throw the, that ethical mindset out of the window when they get to work because it's supposed to be impersonal, it's supposed to... So be more human at work.
0: <laughs> which comes perfectly after the conversation <laughs> about AI as well. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the solution there as well. One of the questions that I try and ask everyone, which is is almost like the, the huge killer question, if you like, which is how does change happen do you have any thoughts on that about what it is that actually creates change and and how change happens in the world or in organizations or in personal lives
1: well again I would talk about movements and about there being a whole for for serious change to happen it relies on lots and lots of people taking different decisions, behaving differently, um, living their lives differently. And I think that this can happen in a whole variety of different ways. It can start from any different point. But there are there are always catalysts. There are always people kind of turning, cranking the wheel of social change. And um, I think that one of the things that's important is that people come upon the same idea at the same time this was one of the things that happened with social entrepreneurship that in the UK that at the time that we were setting up the school for social entrepreneurs there were a number of other organizations started to use the term as well yes not that social entrepreneurs were invented at that point (laughs) in the 1990s they've obviously always been with us they've always been part of society but the but that there were a number of people started to use the terminology and that helped to create this impetus for movement. And, and that helped to spread the ideas out. And then there were a number of these things that happened, these points of crystallization as it were, that helped to propel that movement forwards. One of the things I've definitely learned is that you can't control the way that that movement develops. Uh, I left the UK, as you know, um, in 2005 and I lived in France for a long time. And coming back to the UK and looking at the social entrepreneurship field in 2015, it looked very different from Absolutely. when I left in two thousand and five. There's a whole load of different people got on the on board of that movement and took it in different ways, and that's always something that's going to happen. Um, there was something else I wanted to say about that.
0: Ask me the question. Yes. <laughs> um, so, one of the things that we're uh, that I'm hearing in a lot of the conversation we're having, is that change over the next few years is inevitable. There's, you know, it's almost like a constant that we're dealing with. Have you got any thoughts about how people can prepare themselves for that or become more resilient to it or um, come out, get out ahead of it, if you like? I
1: don't know um, that that's really possible because it's so difficult to foresee. What's going to happen? I think that how can people be more resilient is is a better part of that question. How can people be more prepared for change? And I think that that's about... A lot of that is about thinking through what are the potential outcomes. Scenario planning, I think, is is very interesting. And I think thinking about what are the potential outcomes of what you do in terms of potential negative outcomes as well as potential positive outcomes from any situation that you're looking at is important. I I think that, uh, for instance, in in the strategy work I do with organisations, a lot of people tend to plan their strategy based on they want to do some actions because it feels like it's the right thing to do and then they assume that the outcomes will be what they're hoping for and then they build another step on that and then they assume the outcomes of that'll be good and then they build another step on that and then everything's bright and rosy in five yes. years time and and then they wonder why this the uh, years later why this strategy wasn't actually of any use to them yes. Well, i i think sort of thinking through What happens if this doesn't work? What are the potential negative outcomes? What are the things that could go wrong as I'm moving forward? Um, And being just as ready for those as you are for the, the good things that could happen. That's always the way that I try to think about developments in any organization I'm working with. And I think in my life as well, I try to think through what are the potential consequences of, this, of taking this decision. I think that being a lot slower to take decisions is generally a good idea in life. Not feeling rushed into having to react, 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 react on the pace that someone else is imposing on you. And thinking very, very carefully before you take decisions that are likely to have an impact, a serious impact yeah. on your life, your work, your relationships, whatever it might be.
0: Which wonderfully links back to Michael Young's comments about money buys you time as well. <laughs> <laughs> time have... is
1: very important.
0: And, and as you, you
1: mentioned earlier, thinking about the burn rate of, of what you're doing thinking about giving yourself the maximum amount of time to work things through and work things out is generally a good approach when you're trying to do something new that you don't know how to do it.
0: Fantastic.
1: Society is, is again, back to the big, society is, is made up of relationships, relationships between people and between groups of people. And it's in changing those relationships that things really change. And so I suppose that's where you could say something like the internet, social media, etc., is a big social change, because it does change the way that people interact for both good and bad. Yeah. Social change is never, you know, there's no value attached to it. It's something that happens the entire time. but. So, I think that if you are trying to change society for the better in some way, then it's in those interactions between people and between groups of people that the improvement comes that's what affects people in their lives beyond a certain point I mean obviously yeah. you've got you know you've got your Maslow's hierarchy whatever and and people have to have food, they have to have shelter, whatever. But beyond that, the quality of people's lives, for most people, is controlled by the interactions that they have with the people around them, with their family, with their, com- their neighbours, with their community, with their friends, and with the people who they work with. And so a lot of people's lives can be changed immensely by changing job, or by getting a new boss. Yes. Who treats them in a more human manner? Who's kinder to them, and more responsive to their own to that other person's humanity, and to their own desire for agency, their own desire to do something meaningful with their life? That changes. That can change everything. And I think that going into uh, into meetings with the attitude that you're trying to understand another person and where they're coming from and what it is that they're trying to do. Uh, It's something that I attempt to do in all of my work, to sit down with someone and really understand. And that's part of the privilege, I guess, of being a consultant, is I don't go into projects with a strong agenda of what I'm trying to achieve other than to make the situation better. For as many people as possible, so starting a project around the you know the Caribbean Energy Knowledge Hub, it's a question of who are the people who are trying to do the right thing, and how do we make their lives better, easier, and allow them therefore to be more effective. I think okay. that I think that a lot of um, what I've done in my career has been about this. The School for Social Entrepreneurs is about this. It's not about, I, need, I think the world needs to change in this, that, or the other way. Beyond that, general, we should support people who are trying to do good things in the world and help them to get better. And I think that I apply that to everything. I'm applying that to the Caribbean Energy Knowledge Hub. There are people within these governments and utilities um, who, are, who are genuinely interested in what's the progressive way forward and finding and supporting those people, and allowing them to pass on their enthusiasm to others within the organisation who perhaps didn't share it, therefore collectively hitting a tipping point about, all right, this is this is the right way forward. We do need to stop using burning oil. We do need to build more wind farms or more solar parks. Um, I think that that's really what I've tried
0: to do, and that starts with those relationships. And is there some uh, belief or value that you need to have in order to go in with that open mind you're talking about? Because most people go in with a fixed agenda or their own thoughts in their head. So how do you do that differently? Because I don't think it's quite as simple as you're making it sound. Uh, No, I suppose it's not. Um, For me, it was
1: a very gradual process, I think, of Which started probably with failing. Started with the first time I worked on an organisation that failed and went bust. And starting to think more carefully about how I approach things and starting to realise the extent to which you have to understand the other side in order to achieve what you want to achieve. If you impose something through... abuse of power and through fear it'll hold for a certain time Mm. and it'll hold for a certain time only and so if you want a more sustainable approach to whatever it might be then you have to understand the other person and understand that their needs and desires
0: are just as important as your own. That's... That's quite a profound thing and is there... I get that's how you got to it, but how do you do it? I know Gandhi um, you know, allegedly used to go and actually sit in the seats of the people during a negotiation try and get access to the room beforehand. <laughs> uh, whether that actually happened or not, I'm not sure. But to almost pretend he was them and, and therefore get into their head and try and think through what they want in advance. Is, is yours something like that in terms of process or just almost getting yourself out of the way and having a curiosity about what they might be saying and and actually listening to it. Where, Where are you on that? I think curiosity definitely
1: being, it came from an understanding of, and again I think this is through seeing failure of partnerships. If you have been part of a partnership in name only and you see that it fails to be more than the sum of its parts because people are all, arguing for their own end their own yeah. agenda within that partnership then you realize that you need a different approach to that you need to you need the people within that to approach it with a sense of what's the greater good here that we can all contribute to that gets enough of my agenda met but is but is something bigger is something more than the sum of its parts, and I've seen so many activities where that's not been the case where they end up as less than the sum of their parts, particularly in the social sector where you where organizations that that might collaborate are also competitors for funds and they they have a um a difficulty therefore placed in their way by a, yeah. by external forces in collaborating meaningfully and but but i think that that's a, that's a real problem and I, I think that again you're asking how does it how does an individual <laughs> change the way that they approach this i don't know other than saying for myself it was about reflecting on those Failures that I had been a part of and realizing that it need the approach just needed to be completely reversed and that the only way that I could have an impact on future partnerships future co- collaborative efforts that I was involved in would be that simply to approach it differently myself and There there is a, um, at least lip service to the idea across every field I work in, and I've worked in a lot of fields, at least lip service to the idea that collaboration is necessary. That in this interconnected world, things work differently now, um, and things don't change through the actions of one individual or one organisation ever, meaningfully. So I think that the possibility is there, but it does require a mindset shift mm. that it's not just about marriages of convenience, but it only really works if you genuinely understand what others are trying to achieve. And, you
0: yeah, know, again, I'm going to ask the question, how do you actually do that? Because you say the competing, yeah three organizations technically competing for the same pot need to collaborate in order to, to achieve something. How do they actually do that in a meaningful way? Because what tends to happen, as you, you, mm. you said there, is that there's, a, there's lip service to it. There's, yeah, we're doing this. and So what, what's the difference that could enable that to work? The difference is good leadership, I
1: think. The difference is when there are people leading the, uh, uh, an organite, when there are people leading one organisation's engagement in a project, in a collaborative project, who go in with the attitude that this is not just about us. Mm. Um, again, it doesn't answer the the question of how does an individual leader change their mindset, but yeah. I think that that's the only thing that can make a difference really I think it's very difficult for um, people who have less power and authority within an organization to determine the nature of those relationships you need people with a sufficient level Mm. of power to have the right attitude and and to approach the collaboration in that manner
0: Again, I'm, I'm hearing that cathedral-building-type mentality in there as well. So what constitutes good leadership? What do we need in terms of leaders these days? Strategy.
1: Strategy. Sensible, real strategy. The number of s- documents that I read that purport to be a strategy document that are nothing of the kind, they are merely a list of targets, Right. is incredible. I'm constantly shocked by how bad... Organisations are at this, and that people can get to the top of (laughs) organisations without being good at strategy, without having a that sense of looking in the job being to look into the future and to chart a a sensible course through unknown, unmapped territory. Uh, I, I think that that's that's the fundamental job of leadership, and there's again there's no magic to strategy it is about thinking through the consequences thinking through the the possibilities thinking sensibly about the environment in which you're operating uh trying to do away with any magic thinking about if we do this then this yeah will happen and we'll all be living in rain under rainbows you yes. know, it, it it's about being realistic ultimately okay and and not having again i suppose this goes back to the thing i said earlier about the, the entrepreneur needing to veer between different extremes because whilst it is often very useful to set unrealistic goals in order to encourage other people if you are lying to yourself about the possibility of achieving those unrealistic goals, I don't think that you have much chance of getting there. I think you have to be completely rational and clear-headed about what are the challenges that you're going to face and how you're going to overcome them. That's what's missing in most of these strategies I'm complaining about. They don't say how. Okay. So it's just, here's a target...
0: We'll hit that. Yeah. And we'll
1: we'll work better. We'll be more effective. We'll use, we'll, we'll um, pivot to digital. Okay. But without thinking about, well, what does that actually mean in practice? How is it that we're going to, to do these things? What do we need to stop doing? And what do we need to do more of? Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that that's. That's really important, being open-eyed about how difficult it is to achieve anything,
0: Yes, actually. (laughs) Which is great when we're running a change project. Well, it's it's very
1: difficult to take control. uh, A guy, one of my competitors, actually, as a a social change consultant, but a very smart guy called Ben Metz, Mm. Who used to run Ashoka, UK, um, wrote something that i I really like. He said that um, one one might think that I'm paraphrasing here obviously yeah. one might think that the people in positions of power want to maintain the status quo. but actually that's not true. People in positions of power, control, attempt to control, the the way society is changing. And people who aren't in positions of power don't have any purchase on the, the process. So they are merely in the wake of this social change and having to respond. So I think that that... Um, and I think that one of the things that mm. is positive, to go back to the... Um, a positive end to this <laughs> discussion maybe and to the, the big question of societal change is that often the decision to try to take control of the direction of social travel, of travel and uh, of society is one that we can take without having to ask other people and one that I hope the young generation are realising they can take without having to
0: ask other people. Which seems like the perfect place to to close the conversation, as you say, on a positive note. James, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, as ever, to have this conversation. I look forward to the adventures ahead and uh, many interesting projects. I think I get a feeling we should work together again on something. (laughs) We definitely should. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe. Uh, And if you're willing, take a moment to leave us a rating or review. This podcast is also video recorded. So if you want to see our guests in glorious Technicolor, please head over to YouTube. Uh, I believe it's youtube.com forward slash 91 Untold. But as with all our social accounts, just search for 91 Untold or the 91 Untold Change Project, and I'm sure you'll find us. Now, of course, this is intended as a project, So if you want to get involved in the discussion, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, Please head over to Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn or Twitter um, and join the conversation.